Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak your word to us. That we would hear your word and it would bear fruit in our lives. All to your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Kids, if you haven't already, I invite you to head to the back for your class. Uh, that your teacher will meet you right by those doors if you haven't already. As you're being seated, if you would, turn with me to Genesis 15, read today. Genesis 15, it's page 10 in the Red Bibles in front of you. Genesis 15. Now, I will say I am all for physical object lessons to help make teachings more memorable. But I decided that perhaps this week we might not want to do that. This week in uh, staff meetings and such, we're looking ahead and planning for Palm Sunday and Easter. And as a part of that, we will have children's and youth events, uh, which will include um, Palm Sunday reenactment and also the Stations of the Cross reenactment. And so that got me thinking and laughing about the idea of acting out this week's reading. It would certainly be memorable if we did. And so in this text, where Abram slaughters animals and cuts them in half and lays them in lines. I was imagining myself getting the youth together and butchering stuffed animals and all of that. And as I said, we're not doing that, but that's where my mind went, so you can enjoy that. And then afterwards, we could all take a nap, like Abram did. But while this text is not particularly well-suited for a children's pageant, it is hugely significant for our understanding of salvation. Now, a few weeks ago, I preached on how not to read the Bible. And one of the things that we looked at that week is that it is immensely important for us to remember that we do not view ourselves as the hero. It's not about us. We are not the focus. We are not the heroes. God is always the focus. God is, the, is always the hero. God is always the main point. And here in Genesis 15, we need to take that view that it is the focus on God and what he has done, what he is doing. Abram responds, and we too must respond, but it's we respond to what God does. So this morning, we're going to look at, in my view, we're going to look at the gospel message here in Genesis 15. The good news, that's what gospel means, the good news of what God has done for us as seen in Genesis 15, yes, with the slaughtering of animals and things like that. So three life-changing actions of God for us here in Genesis 15. So the first action of God that we see here in Genesis 15 is we see the Lord initiating. The Lord initiating. Look with me at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now just note that Abram is the same man as Abraham. He gets renamed two chapters later in Genesis 17. It's the same guy, but at this point he's still called Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. 
the word of the Lord came to Abram. Now just two chapters earlier, or three chapters earlier in Genesis chapter 12, same thing as here. When God speaks to Abram, the voice of God just sort of comes out of nowhere. Abram hasn't done anything to initiate it. He hasn't done some noble task and God speaks to him as a result. He hasn't come to God in prayer and God responds. He hasn't come to God in worship and God responds. God takes the initiative and comes to and speaks to Abram. God, who made the world and sustains all things by his power, chooses in his own good pleasure to come and speak to Abram in human language that Abram can understand. God, in his own good pleasure, takes the initiative and reaches to Abram. This is a work of God. Now, there was a popular Christian song that came out a number of years ago now by a band called Delirious. And most of the song was good, and it focused on the declaration that Jesus is alive. That's a good message. But the chorus of the song simply said, I found Jesus. Now, I don't mean to be critical of some wonderful Christians who did some fantastic work around the world in both worship ministry and evangelism. So I don't mean to be critical of them. But the chorus of that song is backwards. What we see here in Genesis 15 and throughout the Bible, all the way from Genesis 3, when God comes looking for Adam and Eve when they start hiding, all the way to Revelation, all the way through Scripture, is we don't find that we find God, but that God takes the initiative and finds us. As it says in 1 John chapter 4, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to us. God always takes the initiative and reaches to us. See, if left on our own, we would never find God. If left on our own, we'd never even seek God, much less find him. But God, in his mercy, takes the initiative to reach out to us in love when we had done absolutely nothing to deserve it. God, in his love and in his mercy, speaks to us and comes to us, becomes one of us, dies for us, and rises to life for us. God takes the initiative, and he comes to us. And so, we, like Abram, must respond. We do not initiate. God initiates to us. But we respond to him. And Abram's response here is the model held up for us in the New Testament. Verse 6, one of the most famous passages of the Bible and one of the more uh, quoted ones in the New Testament. Verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And the New Testament says that that is our model. That is what's needed from all of us, to trust in the Word of God, trust in the work of God. So that we can hear the words of declaration of righteousness through what God has done. God declares Abram righteous. The right and proper response to God's initiative is faith. Trust 
acceptance. We trust what he has done for us. Abram believed what God had said. And so must we. God takes the initiative to reach us, and we, like Abram, must believe. This is the Lord initiating. Second, we see the Lord assuring. The Lord assuring. See, twice in this passage, both in verse 2 and verse 8, Abram expresses doubts to God. God says something, and Abram doesn't understand how that's going to work, and he asks God, how is that going to happen? Now, I find this deeply comforting, that God does not view all doubts as disqualifying us. I find that deeply comforting. Abram is said to trust God, and that is counted to him as righteousness, being in right relationship with God, and yet he still has doubts. It does not say that Abram believed God and he believed everything perfectly with an unwavering, rock solid faith that never needed to ask another question because of his deep trust in God's word. Right on the heels of his faith in God's word, he expresses his doubts and concerns as to how that's going to happen. And instead of God saying, you don't really believe, sorry, I tried, get out of here. In both of these examples, God meets him right in the middle of his doubts. Because his doubts do not disqualify him. See, sometimes doubts can push us from God. And sometimes they can actually push us towards God. Abram doesn't say... I can't have children. I don't have any children. This is ridiculous. I'm out of here. He takes his doubts to God, using them as a reason to draw closer to God in the midst of his doubts and his questions. In my role as pastor, I actually hear this difference a lot. Sometimes people express their doubts and their questions in such a way that, that what they're really doing is they're justifying in their own minds their right to just walk away from God. They have these questions and these doubts, and I just know that no one, not even God, could ever answer them, and therefore I know God isn't real. Using their doubts as a way to lead them away from God. On the other hand, we can allow our genuine doubts and questions and anxieties to lead us to God. God, I have these doubts and anxieties and hurts, and I don't understand, but I trust you. I don't see my way through this, but I believe you and your word. Or to use the words of the man in the New Testament who said to Jesus, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. That's trusting in Jesus, even with our doubts and our questions. And notice God's assurance to Abram. God assures Abram that his promises are true. Look at verse 7. He says to him, I am the Lord. 
who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. I am the Lord. God assures Abram, not by answering all of his questions in this case, but by assuring Abram of who he is. I am the Lord. I brought you out of the land. I am. God assures Abram of his reliability even in the midst of his doubts and questions. And we, like Abram, must trust as well. This is the Lord initiating and then the Lord assuring. And third, we see the Lord fulfilling. The Lord fulfilling. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Abram, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. That's because they're too small. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now this whole scene in which Abram kills the animals, cuts them in half, and lays them in two lines is part of, is one way in which um, ancient covenant ceremonies would have taken place. And the expectation would be that both parties, or at least just the weaker of the two parties, making the covenant would, after these animals had been slaughtered and laid in two lines, that they together or just the weaker would walk in between the line of animal carcasses. And by doing that, they would be essentially saying, may it be done to me as was done to these animals if I break this covenant, this promise that we're making to each other. May this, looking at these butchered animals, may this be my fate if I ever break this covenant promise with you. That's what's happening here. And so we would expect both parties, or just Abram, the lesser, to walk between the severed animal parts, calling down curses on themselves if they ever break the promise to each other. But that's not what happens here. Abram goes to sleep. I mean, God causes him to go to sleep. But Abram falls asleep. And look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. A fire pot and a flaming torch were ancient symbols of God. God passes between the animals. God makes the promise to fulfill the covenant with Abram. God takes upon himself the curse for breaking the covenant. Abram sleeps through it. His part is rather minimal. But from the very beginning of God's covenant with his people, God takes the responsibility upon himself. Now this is completely backwards. The, the weaker one, should be held responsible, not the greater. But God from the beginning places upon himself 
the responsibility for the covenant because he knows that we cannot keep our part sufficiently. And so from the outset, we see that God's plan is always to fulfill the covenant himself. You see, when we reject God, we are supposed to be broken. That's what's supposed to happen. That's what should happen. But God lays on himself the punishment that we deserve. The punishment that would crush us, God lays on his own shoulders. As it says in Isaiah 53, which we will read on Good Friday, the day that Jesus died. Isaiah 53 says, The Lord laid on him, that is Jesus, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he bore the sin of many. God takes the responsibility upon himself. And because of our refusal and our inability to keep his covenant, he becomes one of us in Jesus to fulfill what we should have done and so that he can die in our place, to die like one of those animals, to die to take the punishment that we deserve, to die in love for us and to rise victorious that we might not be crushed under the weight of our sin because it was taken upon himself and he was crushed for us. We are supposed to be the ones who are broken. But God in his mercy walks through the pieces alone, taking the curse upon himself from the very beginning. And in Christ, he has fully and decisively paid the price, bears the penalty, and rises victorious over sin and death and the devil on our behalf. And so we trust. We trust in the God who initiates revealing himself to us. We trust in Jesus who comes to us when we had done absolutely nothing to deserve it. We trust in the God who assures us of his promises because it is he who promises. And we trust in the God who fulfills his promises to us in Jesus. The God who himself fulfills what we are incapable of doing. And the God who in love bears our penalty and grants us salvation to all who trust in him. So may we be those who trust in our God, who initiates, who assures, and fulfills. Amen.